What's up, my favorite listeners? Welcome back for another episode of City of Champions, proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm really excited to post this week's podcast because my guest is the incredibly thoughtful and insanely smart Mac Mail. Mac is a self-proclaimed Edmonton geek, my kind of guy, as well as an entrepreneur, software developer, and writer. His two primary passions in life are computer technology and storytelling. He uses both of these to affect positive change in the city of Edmonton through various channels, which we talk about in this episode. So a few things about Mac that we don't cover in our conversation, and these are things that I'm going to brag about on his behalf. He was voted onto Avenue Edmonton's top 40 under 40 list at age 25. Top 40 under 40 at 25. Pretty impressive stuff. He was named one of Alberta's next 10 most influential people by Alberta Venture Magazine. He's a dedicated community builder and has given back to Edmonton through thousands of hours of board, committee, and other volunteer work for more than a dozen different organizations. I could go on, really, but the point is that Mac is doing great things for the city of Edmonton, and he's a fantastic resource for anyone wanting to learn about or get more involved in city affairs. I'll post links to his social media, his blog, and various other organizations in the show notes, so make sure you check that out after. And also, check out his podcast called Speaking Municipally, which is another member of the Alberta Podcast Network and can be found at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Speaking Municipally is a weekly discussion on key stories in municipal politics. Mac and his co-host Troy pay attention to Edmonton City Council, so you don't have to. Uh, It's become a regular in my weekly podcast rotation. It helps me feel more invested in Edmonton, the city of champions. See the link there. So give it a shot. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with the eloquent and engaging Mac Mail. So firstly, congrats, your daughter's one years old now. Yeah, she just turned one end of January. That's awesome. Has has becoming a dad kind of warped your whole world, changed your perspective on a lot of things? Absolutely. It is true what they say that, you know, it really changes um, the way that you experience the world around you and the sort of perspective that you bring to things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the past, I would have, from a moral position, always said, we should make sure our spaces are accessible. But you know, now pushing a stroller around or, or carrying my daughter around, I have a new appreciation for yeah. um, the challenges there. So, uh, and, and, you know, in the house as well, like, um, you know, smart speakers and all of these things that we, we have in our home that my wife and I don't think too much about. It's like, well, how do we teach my daughter what this thing is, <laughs> right? Does she think there's a person in the speaker? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. So what, where do you fall on the stance of kids and technology? Because there's, you know, it seems like every week, Every month, there's there's new conflicting research on what is and what is isn't acceptable. You know, there's there's the old guard that thinks you know we didn't have it, so why should they? But then there's sort of you know the new age people who just said, look, we're not going back, so there's no right. point in thinking that way. Let's think forward. I would say that so far we've tried to have some balance. You know, like mm-hmm. like everything, I suppose, in moderation. Um, so, you know, my daughter's really young. We don't allow any kind of screen time, right? Mm-hmm. So no TV or cartoons or anything like that. Um, phones is a little harder because, like, we're so dependent on our phones that she sees us pick up our phones and do stuff with them. But, you know, we've tried to be really clear about uh, 
not having our phones at the table when we're eating dinner, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. um, but having said all that, I'm, I'm really excited to allow her and to, to play with her, mm -hmm. um, you know, with new technology and some of the stuff that's there. So I'm very much of the mindset that these can be effective, positive tools if we think about how to use them appropriately yeah. and have some rules and boundaries, which I think is good for mm -hmm. kids. So I'm excited to build some robots with her and do some <laughs> other fun stuff when she's older. But um, for the moment, you know, we're trying to just keep the screen time down. And, and the smart speakers is a challenging one because we're trying to teach her please and thank you and mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. So we have to remember to say those things to the smart speaker. Oh, interesting. Right? So that she picks up on it. Even though it doesn't register. Even though it doesn't care. Does it right? screw with the commands when you say please or thank you? No, it's actually pretty good. And there's, a, <laughs> there's a mode in the US so you can actually require it oh, really? know, for kids, but it haven't enabled that. <laughs> Etiquette yet. mode. Yeah, a kid mode. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, your you know your daughter was born at a good time in that you know she's got all the technology available to her that's going to allow her to do anything that she wants in life but she was born after after the period in which no one was aware of how these technologies would negatively impact a kid right like you know kids born kind of in the, in the last like 10 to 12 years we're like growing up on cell phones and you know you've got the instagram generation of people sort of addicted to the the narcissistic response you're getting from these things without there was no warning before it kind right. of blindsided everyone so now you've got a lot of younger people demonstrating these mental health issues that are associated with you know using these technologies that it was just kind of like i guess it would be akin to like i don't know um, asbestos in the mid 20th century. Like we didn't know any better. Yeah, exactly. We didn't yeah. know any better. And now it's like, well, of course that makes sense. And it's just, it's funny how history changes. So, I mean, it's, it's great that your, your kids at a time where she's protected from that. I think that's true to an extent. Like I think, you know, the, the kids that you're describing, their parents didn't have the understanding or the experience with the technology to maybe consider some of the negative impacts. And so maybe hopefully their kids will benefit from that experience. The only caveat to that is, I don't know what it's going to look like in five years. Like maybe we'll all be walking around in virtual reality worlds mm -hmm. instead of, you know, in the physical world. So it's hard to extrapolate and say that we're going to be able to apply lessons we've learned today because the tech just changes so quickly. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I know is a huge passion yours is tech and computer systems. And that's something I want to touch on later, but I want to get back to the main focus of this. And this is the community of Edmonton. And, yeah. and you're you know, a self-proclaimed builder of the community of Edmonton here. Um, you label yourself as as an entrepreneur, software developer, writer. Um, so let's start by defining what community means to you and, and why is it important? Yeah, I usually, I usually say passionate Edmontonian as well whenever I'm trying to, you know, do a little bit of a bio. Um, you know, I've had a similar experience to, to many people in that um, I was pretty focused on school and, and work and, you know, not really paying too much attention to the community. And it was for me when I graduated from university, um, I started to pay a little bit more attention to the world around me. And for, for me, this was around 2007, blogging had kind of started to increase in popularity ever since you know the early 2000s. And so I was writing about my experience, um, going to new events, meeting new people, learning new things about the city. And you know, social media wasn't a huge thing at the time. Twitter had only just been invented in 2006 mm -hmm. and Facebook only a couple of years prior to that and, and was pretty limited still and who could join. So yeah. we didn't have the same platforms for people to create and consume. So for me, having the blog, it was a really good way to start to build some online community and to meet some interesting people. And mm -hmm. what I found is it was just positive reinforcement. The more I wrote about, the more people I met, the more I get introduced to other things, learn about new things, um, 
to the point where you, you know you've got way too much to talk about and not enough time to do it <laughs> yeah and when you need to kind of spend most of your time looking forward and not rest on your laurels i suppose right yeah so coming out of uh university you started uh blogging obviously what what was sort of your main source of income other than that so my background uh in terms of like what i've always been interested in uh, since i was a kid and what i, went, I studied in school and what I worked in for many years was software development. So I was a, a software developer when I graduated from university, um, and you know worked at a software company for for ten years, kind of working my way up and uh, to the point where I managed the entire product development team. So software has been kind of my bread and butter, I suppose. But it's interesting because don't we, like when you think a software engineer, you don't necessarily think of someone as an eloquent writer or a, a great communicator like you seem to be like how, how, how did you marry those two those two distinct personalities well thank you um, yeah I think that's that's changing partly too just in as we expand you know access to this information and people learn about it and can pursue careers in um, technology we can move away a bit from the stereotype of the you know introverted mm -hmm. not very skilled uh, communicator um, but for me, I've always been interested in, in writing, and so now it's like, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm able to say writing both code and, mm -hmm. and you know, human English language words. Um, but I've always been interested in writing, so when I started blogging, it was really because blog engines were new and software developers were experimenting with this stuff. Like now, if you wanted to start a blog, you're probably going to launch a WordPress blog or, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to go with a, a platform that's pretty well known, but at the time, there were so many. So... I got into it kind of to play with the code, and right. uh, so I wasn't a very good writer, uh, you know, uh, as a blogger. But mm -hmm. practice makes perfect, I guess. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I'm perfect, but I my blog today, if you read my blog today, is very different than um, when I started the blog in in 2003, and really kind of got into writing about Edmonton in 2008. Were there any particular bloggers or writers that you sort of modeled yourself after? Not intentionally, I guess. I mean, I do think to be a good writer, you've got to read a lot. To be a good blogger, you've got mm -hmm. to read other blogs. Mm -hmm. So I've always been a voracious reader of, of blogs. I would say early days, I tended to, to read mainly tech blogs. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess I picked up some of the, the habits that uh, are common in some of the tech blogosphere, you know, acronyms and all the rest of it. Right. Um, and had to, to learn how to better explain things to people that maybe weren't as familiar with the concepts, which actually transitioned nicely into, you know, municipal politics, which is what I usually write about now. Yeah. Because some of those things you've got to be able to explain to somebody who maybe doesn't have the context or the background to understand them as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, I don't know if there was any one blogger run, like, I'm going to be like that person. It was probably just, you know, the, the influence of reading a bunch of different bloggers. Right. And, you know, you, um, I, I listened to the last or one of the most recent podcasts you were on and you were talking about sort of the shifting um, the shifting landscape of journalism and right. and how we've you know changed from well I'll let you describe but I think it's something along the terms of uh, subscription base to more of a per click base and it's kind of skewing everything that's going on right now and and, and diluting down the quality of journalism yeah we're in the midst of a lot of disruption still um, there's some positive signs but there's you know usually the things you hear about journalism and media are pretty negative right but um, what's interesting to me about it is that we're kind of returning back to the way things were before the 20th century, mm -hmm. where we had this really weird period of time of mass media, where we were all kind of watching the same TV shows and listening to the same radio stations, reading the same newspapers. Um, that's kind of unusual. Like before we could have the ability to reach so many people, we had these smaller communities of, 
of interest, whether mm. it was topical or geographical or what have you. And the internet has both made it possible to reach a large number of people mm -hmm. and also to better reach small communities of interest. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that we're returning to these communities of interest a little bit. And on the business model side of things, it's harder to make a business selling ads when you've got a small audience, but a subscription or a donation or a membership-based approach, an audience pay-based approach, um, can actually work really well in those scenarios where you're delivering you know, real value to a community of really interested, connected, um, you know, frequent engaging uh, community people. So um, I think that's an encouraging thing mm -hmm. about where journalism is going is mm -hmm. that we're starting to see some uh, evolution and some experimentation in the business models, but there's going to be a lot more pain to come and there's already been a lot of pain. And you know, in Canada, there's 12,000 fewer people working in news journalism now than there was 10 years ago. Um, th we're going to see more layoffs before it gets better. Any indication as to where those folks went? Uh, a lot of them went into um, public relations or the communications mm -hmm. fields. Um, you know, that's uh, here in Edmonton, for instance. Mm -hmm. You can look around at the, the different communications offices and you can see lots of former journalists there. Right. So I think that's a big chunk of it. Um, some have tried to go their own way and do some things independently, which is which is good. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the majority have um, either really struggled or have tried to make a lateral move. And, you know, some have gone into completely different industries, of course, mm -hmm. but... Um, communications is close enough that you know they can apply that skill set right there's we're seeming like we're on the precipice of a lot of these jobs not these jobs specifically lots of jobs in general being disrupted um, through automation and other processes I mean there's one I was listening to one um, presidential candidate for 2020 and he was saying that the industrial revolution uh, that kicked the factory workers out in America, there was already violent riots all over the U.S. because of it. And this next automation industrial revolution is expected to take away three to four times the number of jobs that that revolution did. So how can we not expect sort of violent right. riots? And I mean, you know, and then you've got, you've got um, people saying, you know, okay, truckers, for example, like they're going to lose their jobs so what can we get them to do and someone came up with the hashtag learn to code right but that's just really not feasible these were people that were good at school to begin with most likely and decided to go into something more more skilled more manual what you know in your opinion can people do to start preparing for for the massive number of jobs that are going to start disappearing Great question. I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's good for everybody to have some understanding of how the technology that we use on a daily basis works. So that doesn't mean that everybody needs to become a coder mm -hmm. and needs to earn a living through coding, but mm -hmm. I do think it's important that people have a better understanding of when you ask Alexa a question, like what is actually happening, right? right? I think it, it reduces the magic of it. And, and makes it more real and something that we can actually make decisions about then. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that's a good aspect of all of these learn to code things that, mm -hmm. have, that have popped up. It does make it easier for people to get that base level understanding about how the world around them is, is working. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't try to suggest to anyone what they should do if their job is in question, but I do so think... Some might not know that there is. Yeah, right? but I do think there's some really interesting you know, topics of discussion that have come up as a result. So universal basic income is one that has been talked about a lot. People like Bernie Sanders talk about this idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, other candidates uh, in the U.S. as well. There's some experiments happening from some rich Silicon Valley people who are feeling guilty about the tech that they've created that's going to eliminate jobs. 
So, you know, I think exploring those alternatives is a good thing and we should put them on the table to try to have a a, a well-reasoned case for whether they will or won't work and Mm -hmm. to do some experimentation with them. Um, I think Edmonton is really interesting in this whole situation because we're, uh, you know, depending on, on the day, ranked in the top three or four of artificial intelligence research centers in the world. So if artificial intelligence is the fourth, you know, industrial revolution, as people often say, Mm -hmm. and and so much of the research is coming out of Edmonton, you know, that makes it a really interesting place to be at this moment in time while this stuff is happening. Um, And we're seeing some encouraging signs around investment in continuing that research and 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 taking that research and building things with it making companies that are going to improve you know the wealth of edmonton and alberta but Mm -hmm. there hasn't been a lot on the sort of moral or ethical aspects of it and you know given that we're such a leader on in in the research it's a bit surprising that we haven't maybe seen as much on the other side so Mm -hmm. i'd like to see a little bit more of that here locally are you involved in any of the, the committees that are kind of planning what to do with these funds? Or Well, first, they were pitching for these funds, and, and I think just last week it, it was announced that we're getting a pretty pretty substantial influx in the next five years, which is great. Um, but are you involved in this at all? So, no, I've not been on any of the committees. I've attended a bunch of the meetings as a journalist, and I've been kind of writing about um, you know what's happening in local tech in particular, and, and or more specifically, but also uh, about AI a little more broadly. So. Mm-hmm. The NDP government's announcement of 100 million over five years for for AI and attracting AI high tech companies here and mm-hmm. building new companies here, I think, is really encouraging. It's a little bit of an election promise, right? So we'll mm-hmm. see where that goes. But uh, I think it's pretty difficult to look at where is Alberta going to be in five years and not imagine that Alberta, uh, artificial intelligence is a is a significant part of that. So maybe it's less political than it might at first seem right um but yeah it's encouraging and and um you know there's some passionate people in edmonton working on this challenge how can we make sure that we're not going to fall behind how can we make sure that we can build enough wealth here to benefit everybody and not just Mm -hmm. a select few and i don't know that anybody has the answers to that obviously but um you know the the funding announcement and some of the other companies that have launched in Edmonton and some of the interest that has started to build up around this topic, I, to me, are all encouraging signs. Even mm-hmm. if we might disagree with the way things are going, the fact that we can have a conversation about it, a discussion about it, is a is an encouraging sign. It, you're obviously a big proponent of um, startups and entrepreneurship. I mean, I think you're one of the founders of Startup Edmonton. Is that right? I was on the founding board, founding of, board. of Startup Edmonton. Yep. So yeah. I don't want to take anything away from Ken and Ken. <laughs> they did all the heavy lifting. But yeah. There was a group of us that supported them, and yeah. I was happy to be a part of that group. So what you know what. Um, what can the the average student coming up or the average you know entrepreneur wannabe entrepreneur do to um, to to you know get the the business juices going? Let's say like you know someone comes up they they come out of university or, or and they're they're educated they're they're motivated they're willing to go out and get stuff done but you know the world is so vast and there's right. so there's so much sort of just wide-eyed you're almost paralyzed by by your options what what would your recommendation to someone be i think that there's a lot of value in having face-to-face conversations with other people mm-hmm. uh, so it's maybe simple to say networking is an important aspect of it but i do think that's really really important i think you learn from other people you make connections that you never know when they're going to be valuable for mm-hmm. for what you're trying to accomplish um, so it's pretty hard to be successful i think if you lock yourself in the basement and code or 
or in the living room in code. It doesn't have to be a basement, right? Yeah. But you've got to get out and talk to people and you've got to figure out like if you're trying to solve a problem, is it the right problem? Is it actually going to serve the needs of the people that you're aiming to serve? Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens through communication. You learn that through talking to other people. So I think that's pretty critical. Um, and a really good opportunity in Edmonton now is to take advantage of all of these programs and services that are available that that weren't. So when I started my first company in 2004, you know, there was no startup Edmonton. Mm-hmm. There were none of these other programs for, for budding entrepreneurs or people who had an idea and wanted to run with it. Um, and now there are. So take advantage of that. Go to those events, go to the meetups, meet people, you know, make connections with, with folks that have skills and perspectives that are different than what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, participate in a hackathon. Those also didn't exist really at the time. What's a hackathon exactly? So a hackathon is like this, uh, you know, two-day event usually where you come together. Maybe you have an idea already. Maybe you don't. You mm-hmm. see a bunch of ideas in the room. You form small teams with a group of people that are interested in tackling one of those particular ideas. And you see as what you can get done, how, like how much can you get done in 48 hours? And at the end of it, you've got a pitch or you've got a demo okay. what you were able to come up with. So it's meant to be like, can we take an idea from idea stage mm-hmm. through to prototype mm-hmm. really, really quickly? Right. And the compressed time kind of forces you to make some decisions about how should this work and what should right. it look like and how can we most effectively, most efficiently get there mm-hmm. with the idea that if it doesn't work and it doesn't resonate, you're going to find that a much more quickly than if you right. you know, took a more relaxed approach. So you want to fail fast in the Silicon Valley parlance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to say that you just learn more quickly. <laughs> That's yeah. more positive. Spin. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem for most people is that they they're, they have ideas in their head, right? And, and they never get to the point of actually working them out, right? So they kind of go on with this great idea and they think it's a great idea, but they never really bounce it off anyone. They never put it into practice or they never sort of see like, cause you know, you, you know that feeling when you wake up and you kind of have that dream and you try and remember it and it yeah. feels really real and you feel like you know everything about it. And then you like try and write it down. You're like, this makes no sense at all. I think ideas are kind of similar in that sense is they're very ephemeral yeah. in your head and you get this feeling that they make sense. And then you try and write them down or talk to someone about them. And you're like, I got to come back to you about this. Like it, it makes zero sense and I'm full of shit right now. <laughs> the other thing investors will often tell you is that anybody can have an idea and it's all about the execution. Yeah. That's what they're really looking for. They'll mm-hmm. invest in the team that can execute on those ideas, mm-hmm. right? Um, There's an investor who came to Edmonton a few weeks ago. And I wrote about his presentation and he said there are a lot of entrepreneurs. So this right. is Paul Singh is the investor. There are a lot of entrepreneurs, not entrepreneurs. And he was sort of encouraging people to get started. And, you know, in my experience in Edmonton, I've, I'm one of those folks that will pretty much say yes to a coffee no matter what. Like, mm-hmm. I'm always happy to get together with somebody for coffee. Do you need more coffee, by the no, way? No, I'm good with yeah, the coffee. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, often people will say, I have this idea for an app, but I don't know a developer. Mm. Like, I'm not a coder. How do I make this happen? And I think, actually, you don't really need that to get started. If you've got an idea, there's lots of tools you can use to prototype it, right. you know, to test it out. Like, you don't need an app. Maybe you start with a web form and see if that solves the problem for, even if it's done very manually for mm-hmm. the, the target audience that you have. So there's lots of ways to get started. Um, and that is really probably the biggest hurdle is going from idea to right. doing something about it. Right. And that comes in the way people are taught how to think. And that's something I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you're obviously a product of, um, you know, the typical academic institution. Do you feel that like the current models of academic institutions are a sustainable with their, you know, inflating of costs and, you know, massive student debt that's accumulating and b is, is it uh, practical? Like, are there better ways to learn 
um, and to, to be involved with what you want to be involved in going forward. Are they sustainable? I, I think probably not if the costs keep going up the way that they are, mm-hmm. right? Like I, uh, am I saving enough money for my daughter's future college education? I have no idea. I hope so. Yeah. Um, you know, there are great tools available now that just never used to be. So there's these massive open online courses, MOOCs, people call them. Like you can go online and watch a course from the best lecturer on a particular topic from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, uh, the content and the, the teaching is available to everybody now, often for free. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still value in those physical spaces that universities and colleges and other post-secondary institutions provide. Right. Um, the connections that they have to the community are still really valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that, um, you know, the Richard, Richard Florida's original sort of concept that, you know, creative class were going to, you know, not be tied to a geography. Geography wasn't going to be important because of, you know, the way that internet has changed things. Mm-hmm. Turned out to not be true. Geography right. is actually really, really important. Mm-hmm. And so I think universities will always kind of be around for, partly for that reason. Um, are there better ways to learn? I have to imagine there are. I mean, our education system has been pretty much set up for the industrial era, right? Kind of factory assembly line. Yep. Put them through school and we put them through grades and at the other end we have a citizen that should be able to go into the workforce and mm-hmm. that's not maybe what we need for a 21st century um, society so I think there's interesting opportunities coming up now with um, you know not only these MOOCs but sort of applying say artificial intelligence to it so mm-hmm. it can guide your your training and your learning based on um, your own pace and your own uh, knowledge as opposed to some curriculum that was set by somebody that isn't personalized for you so mm-hmm. i think that's exciting i think mm-hmm. that could be an interesting way to take technology and apply it to education and, and allow people to learn more effectively um you know there's all kinds of interesting ideas in education too like why do we group people by age maybe we should group them by pace like where they're at mm-hmm. so does it matter that you're all the same age in the same grade or should we maybe put you all together because you're really strong at math and then you go to a different group for when you're a little bit behind on another topic i'm not mm-hmm. sure but um, you know, technology is uh, kind of making it possible to explore some of those ideas relatively efficiently. Right. You know, Khan Academy and, and all of these online tools that are available are kind of going that direction. So mm-hmm. I'd like to hope that, you know, my university experience is not the same as the one that my daughter has yeah. uh, 20 years from now. Hopefully it's better. Um, but who knows? <laughs> That's an interesting question. You know, like obviously people mature at different ages and, at you know, you could have... 50 people at, at the same age and they'd all be vastly different in their interests and their skill set and their their um, motivation to learn as well. Right. Um, but I think what what I'd like to see is more more focus on teaching skills versus knowledge. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Our, the access to these supercomputers in our pockets has, for all intents and purposes, made you know, learning of route facts virtually meaningless. Absolutely. There's no need to waste your time with that. But going back to your example of, you know, starting an app and maybe instead of getting a developer right off the hop using a web form, it's like, that's just such a simple way to state it. But someone might just be so caught up in like, this is how things are done that they might not be able to look at it from a different perspective. And that ability to look at problems from a different perspective and take a different route than, than what's always been done. I think, I don't know how you teach that exactly other than just experience and, uh, and having great mentors in that sense. Like, like I get lots of people ask me like, 
oh, you're, you're, you're producing films now. Like, oh, you, you must have gone to school for that. And I'm like, no. Right. Now, and they're like, well, how do you do it? It's like, well, I just found someone who knew how to do it and I learned from them, right? right. And it's so counterintuitive to a lot of people because we're so ingrained. You must go to school. You must learn from an academic institution how to do what you want, right? But I mean, the kid's going through... You know the English program at a university. Are they going to be English professors? Are they going to be writers? Are they going to be something different? Like it's, you know, it's the, there's something to be said for the old mentee mentor, yeah, master apprentice, master apprentice. Yeah, exactly. Kind of similar to what I was saying with the re- return to the way things were before mass media. It's mm-hmm. kind of the same in education. A return to maybe the way things were before mass education came along, and that is how you learned. You found mm-hmm. uh, you learned from a. a, a and the masters, I mean, you had more experience than you and yeah. you paid close attention and they took the, took you under their wing and you learned from them, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that's that's a really interesting uh, model for sure. Do you, if, if you compared sort of the disillusion, if you will, um, of the academic institutions with these more online platforms and, and, you know, lectures that you can watch online, if you compare that to sort of the dissolution of the mass media companies um, in terms of, well, now you've got more people and more places writing, um, but they're not necessarily vetting their topics. They're not diving as deep into into the research. Do you see that potentially happening with education in the same way that it has kind of with journalism? I hope not. Hopefully not. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think um, what we've seen in journalism is way more opinion than, mm. than we used to have. Um, <clears throat> it's very easy now for anybody to have the means of production and distribution to, to say their piece and have it get out there and reach you know, a large number of people. So that's what we've seen on, on that side of things. But hopefully on the, you know, university side of the equation with, you know, research and scientific research and peer review and the sort of established processes there, um, you know, will allow us to continue to move forward positively, mm-hmm. you know, with validation and, and making sure that, you know, surveys are replicated and research studies are replicated and, and that we don't draw faulty conclusions based on just one of them. So, right. you know, I'm a little more hopeful that this institutions that are set up there are kind of going to survive any sort of technological disruption right. uh, that might derail that. And I guess consumption of, of news and journalism is, is more driven by by um, emotional valence than, say, education would be, right? You know, people, the outrage clicks. People sure. are pissed off about something. They're more likely to engage with it, um, even more likely than they are with something that makes them really happy, right? Right. So it's interesting to see that. I think your point about uh, teaching people to... Uh, to, to learn essentially mm-hmm. as opposed to memorizing rote facts mm-hmm. and teaching them how to be resourceful enough to go and discover something that they need to find an answer to is a really interesting point of view. I completely agree by the way that that's the direction we want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, no point in memorizing the facts that are on your phone. But we're kind of seeing that we're moving away from exploration discovery to single answers. So. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, if you wanted to Google something, you'd type it into your web browser and you'd have a whole bunch of results and you'd have to do some critical thinking about those results right. and you'd have to visit a bunch of them. Interesting. Increasingly, you ask your Google Home or your Alexa and you get one answer. Yeah. Right? Some things that's okay. There's right. an objective one answer. Who won the Stanley Cup in 1997? Right. But in other cases, that's not the case. Right. Uh, and so what are we missing out if the technology takes us down this path where we're going toward one single yeah. answer as opposed to a discovery yeah. process. Right? And who gets the final say on what that final answer is, right? right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to, lot to unpack there for sure, but yeah. I want to get into, well, I want to cover a bunch of things with you still, but let's let's quickly talk about Taproot to give sure. some context to, to your, um, your endeavor in journalism at this point in time. 
So Taproot Edmonton is uh, building the future of local journalism, we like to say, right here in Edmonton. Um, so Karen Unland, um, founder of the Alberta Podcast Network, and I started it in 2016. And it came about because we had been talking about future of journalism, just you know, going for coffee and having this conversation off and on for quite a while. We were part of a small group that organized uh, Media Camp Edmonton uh, a couple of times here. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early 2010s, and this was a conference where we tried to bring together traditional mainstream journalists and these sort of new digital journalists and put them in the room together and see what would happen. So we kind of continued on that in that vein, discussing like, what does it look like? And then in 2016, Post Media merged the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun newsrooms, and they laid off 35 people here in Edmonton. And mm-hmm. we kind of had one of those like, okay, let's stop talking about it and do something about it, yeah. mo- about, about it moments. So we put up a landing page and allowed people to give us money and said, this is what we're thinking about doing. This is our idea. Will you support us? And uh, we kind of have been building on that ever since. It's such a fantastic and such a novel concept. But when you hear it, like any good idea, when you hear it, you're like, how has this not existed before, right? So let me try and explain it and then you can tell me sure. what I've gotten wrong. But essentially, you, you join Taproot as a member and people submit um, what they might be interested in hearing about in terms of journal- journalism and, and certain topics. And if enough people sort of upvote that, um, that puts into action you hiring a journalist to go out and write and cover that topic. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much the gist of how we how we started. We've added some stuff to that since, but mm-hmm. that's kind of the core of the original journalism that we do is mm-hmm. we, we think that the best journalism comes from the curiosity of our members. Like, what do people actually want of to course. know about, right? Yeah. As opposed to, in the traditional model, like, what is going to get the most page views or clicks, yeah. which is really serving the advertiser, not the, the mm-hmm. reader, right? Um, so, yeah, our, our members ask questions. It's a little bit fuzzy in that we, you know, obviously, if it's got a ton of votes and, and comments, we want to try to find a way to do that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have some editorial gatekeeping, essentially, to say, like, okay, is this a story that we should do, that we should assign a journalist to? Right. You know, the curiosity of our members is a very strong indicator of that. Right. Um, but it's we've left it open to, to our editorial team to make an, an alternative decision. And they get veto power. The reason is, you know, people say, well, what happens if you get, like, 100 members that all join and they just vote on this one question? Are you, like, forced to do a story that might be... You know, what, what would be an example? Of, I don't know. If you had like a, a, a public interest group, you know, really advocating for one particular topic, yeah. and they ask a very sort of specific question, and the story has to kind of go in that direction. Um, does that pigeonhole you? The other, the other um, way around that that we have is we we treat our questions, the members' questions, as our assignment desk in a way. Mm-hmm. So they're not writing the story; mm-hmm. they're giving us the seed to explore the They're story. saying, what this, what's the deal with something? And you guys are like, well, if enough people want to know, let's go find out. And what we find out may not always be a direct answer. So a really right. good example of this, um, one, of the, one of the most popular questions we had, somebody asked, you know, if you're driving down or walking down White Avenue yeah. and you go by the Tim Hortons and you see all the motorcycles outside, <laughs> like, what is their deal? Why are they there? <laughs> are they a gang? Are what's they a happening? gang? Yeah. Am I safe? And so we set out to find out the answer to this and we interviewed some of the members of that community yeah. and um, uh, the journalist Ryan Stevens did and, and, and the owner of the Tim Hortons. And you know, <laughs> the, the reason they're there is really not that interesting. Yeah. Um, and the story kind of took a different direction and became all about the community of people that mm-hmm. they represent and the network that they've built across the province and right. the work they do for charity and community. And so it kind of, you know, the question was a jumping off point 
for a really interesting story. Yeah, I think that's fantastic because it's such a good example of something that everyone is like, not everyone, but a lot of people in, in the city are exposed to. Sure. And everyone kind of wonders the same thing. Like, what's the deal with that? Yeah. Right. I'm trying to think of like other examples off the top of my head, though. I feel like in the course of a normal day, there's at least five times where I'm like, I wonder if anyone else wonders these things that I wonder, right? Exactly. Well, so that's fantastic. And I also like that you guys do as best a job as possible of, of indicating how one can get involved if there is an action item or, or how someone can make an impact based on this topic. Yeah. So, you know, in traditional journalism, mainstream journalism, there's often this... Um, view from nowhere, this attempt to be super objective uh, when you're writing a story. And I think that's a little crazy because people always have biases. And I think it's much better to declare your bias and be transparent about what it is um, and, and try to be fair and mm -hmm. honest in your work, but allow the reader to make their own decision. Um, but we also feel like if you've done a story on something, and that means you've done the research, you've done your homework, you've done the interviews and, and investigated it, you should have a pretty good idea of what's up and what's down, mm -hmm. right? And you should be able to make some suggestions for people about what you learned as a result. So at the bottom of all of our long-form stories is a what you can do section. Right. And sometimes it's very simple, like you can go and you know, write to your city councillor about this mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. if it's something that you care about. And other times, you know, it has a much bigger impact. So one of the stories we did early on was about um, pedestrian deaths and, and homicides. So this is a more newsy story than the, the White Avenue one. Yeah, you hear deaths and homicides, <laughs> you go, wow, okay, I'm yeah. fucked up. But the, the question was, why do we treat them differently? Why is it when you kill someone with a gun or a knife, we call it homicide, mm -hmm. and when you kill them with a car, we call it pedestrian deaths? If you kill them with a car intentionally, is that a homicide? It's not, uh, not often the way that we describe it. Okay. And so one of, the, one of the recommendations in the what you can do section is be really mindful about the terminology that you use. So whenever mm -hmm. you read a news headline and it says woman killed by van in crosswalk, mm -hmm. well, no, she was killed by the driver of the van. Right. The van didn't kill her. <laughs> um, and the way that we use that terminology, that phrasing, mm -hmm. uh, has a big impact on how we think about that problem in our community, right? right? So, yeah, that's an example of, you know, we've done our research on this and we've talked to the experts and, you know, this is a, a concrete example of something that could change to have an impact. Right. Can you recall a story where you had a sort of preformed opinion of something that once it went into actual journalistic research and, and the results came out, you kind of, you went a full 180 and changed your mind on something? Well, not a full 180 maybe, but I live on 104th Street downtown. Yeah, uh, I've been a, a member of that community for a long time. I've been on the steering committee and as a resident and organized events there. And, and so the question was like, why are so many businesses on 104th Street closing? Mm -hmm. um, and we had our, our journalist Mel Priestley do a, a good write-up and investigation of this. And, you know, I didn't know that I had a clear idea, but I was like, oh, maybe the rents are too high. You know, mm -hmm. the landlords are just charging rents that are way too exorbitant because they think that 104th is this hip, vibrant place that they can attract a higher rent. Or, yeah. you know, maybe it's um, speculation because of the arena district going up nearby and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and if you read the story, what we kind of get to, what Mel kind of discovers is that it's maybe a little bit more of a tension between whether it's a place for residents or a place for visitors or a place that tries to straddle the line. Mm -hmm. So is it a street where people come in for a hockey game and spend some money and then leave? Or is yeah. it a street where thousands of people live and call home? Um, and the reality, of course, is that it's a little bit of both. And right. so some of that tension, some of the reasons that some businesses have closed and others have not is mm -hmm. because of that, that dynamic, right? Yeah. So it kind of made me think about the street 
differently than when we had started the story. For sure. Now, and you as a resident of 104th, I mean, how do you feel about your neighborhood being infiltrated on certain nights of the week by tens of thousands of people? I mean, I live on 104th Street by choice. Mm-hmm. No one forced uh, you to live no there. No one forced me to live there. I kind of knew what I was getting into, right? When, this when, bougie neighborhood of yours. Yeah. <laughs> when my wife and I moved there, we, we knew we were going to be in the thick of it, right? Mm-hmm. In the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't expect it to be quiet. And, uh, you know, any of those sorts of things. Like everybody, we want to have a safe home and, and a place that people respect and all of that. But um, that's a problem anywhere you go. You've got to get involved if you want to make sure those things happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, initially we weren't really sure what would happen on hockey nights. We found that it's really not that much of an impact. You see mm-hmm. streams of people going up and down the street to and from the LRT stations. Yeah. And depending on how badly we won or lost, um, they can be a little louder or not, but it doesn't last very long. And right. it's part of what makes it exciting to live right downtown is right. that vibrancy that happens. Of course. Happens, right? It's not like you're some you know, curmudgeon the old man, like, no. and all of a sudden we've got this big playoff win and, and, and the, the whole street is alive and you're like, oh, shut up, I'm trying to sleep. You're probably celebrating with them at this right. same time. Exactly. Right, exactly. The bigger challenge has probably been, um, you know, downtown, there's a surprising number of sirens mm-hmm. and I kind of tune them out now, but whenever we have folks come over, they're like, wow, it's loud. It's loud right? Yeah. Like you're just not used to it. But if yeah. you're, if you're living there, you just sort of tune it out. But yeah. um, the, the motorcycles and the cars that, you know, rev their engines and speed really loudly in the middle of the night. That's really annoying because yeah. it just reverberates off all the buildings and stuff. Just and it's like corridor, there's yeah. never a police officer to ticket them when that's <laughs> happening. You know what I mean? Um, but aside from that, you know, I really enjoy yeah. the vibrancy of it, and I sort of feed on that energy, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to look out my balcony and onto de- some of downtown and see the activity going on is is good on a day to day basis because I'm like, oh, there's things happening. Um, but I will say, whenever I come back from a bigger city. I'm always then put back in my place and realize that Edmonton really isn't all that vibrant no. compared to other places. No, it's uh, all perspective, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Do, you, do you travel lots? Uh, I try to, yeah. My yeah. wife and I like to travel quite a bit, yeah. um, mainly to uh, to cities as opposed to beaches. Okay, uh, good. So we like to travel to big cities and experience the way things work in other places and try to live like locals. Airbnb has been amazing for yeah. travelers like us because you can kind of live in a real you know, residential place and get yeah. a feel for that space as opposed to a hotel. So our neighbor here is actually an Airbnb. Nice. Yeah, it's funny. You always see someone new and the people fidgeting with the uh, the lockbox, trying to figure out how to get in. And- yeah, I, I was thinking the other day I should just let the owners know, like, hey, if you've got a guest with a problem, just maybe come knock on our door. We'll help them out instead of you having to drive across. Charge a small fee or something. Yeah, <laughs> a small twenty dollar fee, whatever, yeah. something yeah. like that. Um, so you mentioned earlier that there was a an investor that came into town who you went to see speak or hear speak um that's a big question i have is is there one consolidated place that one can go like myself to to get more informed on what's happening in the city and maybe have a curated list of my interests and and what events i might be interested in going to you know and there's one that that you hosted at was it called change camp or camp change camp change camp which is a way you know basically well you can explain it and yeah, Change Camp was an event in 2008 that we did that kind of brought people together that had quite varying interests, mm-hmm. I suppose, but it was a place for people to kind of explore ideas and find other people who were interested in the same things that they were. And mm-hmm. lots of really interesting relationships, I think, came out of that Change Camp. We got right. the Open Data Catalog and some of the other good things that have gone on in the city. Yeah. Um, Karen and I, you know, had met before that, obviously, but. I think uh, our relationship developed a little bit more through Change Camp. One of the things I said at the event was that I'd like to change what 
the future of local media is and mm -hmm. I'd like to change how that looks and she was uh, really intrigued by that idea or that statement because she was still working in uh, mainstream journalism at the time so is there a place where you can go I mean that's what we're trying to build with Taproot mm. so currently we do these curated email newsletters on topics of interest so mm -hmm. technology is kind of our flagship one at the moment if you want to know what is happening in Edmonton's local tech scene mm -hmm. what events are coming up you know what companies have done certain things what investments have been made any of that kind of stuff you can read the Tech Roundup, and every mm. Tuesday, uh, you're going to get a good briefing on on what's happening. Um, or City Council, for instance. Every mm -hmm. Friday, you can read our Council Roundup and be pretty well informed about what's going on at City Hall for that given week. Yeah. Um, so we're not covering every topic yet, but you know we're trying to build a model that will allow us to do this sort of beat reporting, this beat mm -hmm. coverage mm -hmm. um, of, of t local topics of interest. Mm -hmm. And then connecting it back to where Taproot started, where our members are asking questions. Um, one of the ways we decide what beats to cover is what our members are curious about. But then also, if you're following the tech one every week, you've got a pretty good foundation about what's happening to be able to ask different questions that we can then explore yeah. in a long-form story. Yeah, absolutely. And I just uh, just came across it in doing the research for this podcast with you and signed up for that weekly newsletter. So I'm excited to start digging into that content. But it's such a fantastic um, service that you guys offer. Like you know, to, to, to really get interested and invested in the city that you live in. I mean, it might be because I'm not from here that I'm more curious or, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's just like, how do you, the city seems like such a big place and it's, it's what a million people are yeah. just shy of. Um, and it's like, how do you, how do you begin to understand the inner workings of it? Especially when you've got no connection to it in terms of politically or, you know, you don't, it's just, it's overwhelming to say the least right. so it's great that you guys are curating this stuff and and you know one of my big interests now is how how the things in this city run and how the political landscape runs and i know that's a big interest of yours so absolutely i you know i'd love to i'd love to start chatting about sort of what what the current issues are like what, what are the big ones that you're seeing i know you guys just covered the lrt expansion in, in a recent podcast and you covered the uh the mayfair golf course and these are really interesting things that that if it weren't for your podcast, I wouldn't really know about. Cool. Right? Well, so. thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, yeah, we cover municipal politics every week, uh, my co-host Troy Pavlik and I. And, you know, municipal affairs is, or urban affairs is what I often tell people is my beat, right? So what I blog about is local politics, local business, local tech, that kind of stuff. Um, and so Taproot, you know, has uh, both a, a council roundup, as I mentioned, but also a, a podcast um, devoted to local politics. and Speaking municipally. Speaking municipally, yep. Just to plug it. Uh, thank you. And uh, there's always something interesting for us to be talking about. So, you know, uh, one of the things you hear in journalism or discussions about future of journalism is like who, you know, if, if newspapers die, who oh who will go and sit through a council meeting and tell you the important <laughs> stuff? Um, and You're you sitting know, there with your hand up. This guy will. And I'm kind of cynical about it because so few of the people that we think about in local journalism actually do that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not really the way that it goes. And because of the uh, changes that we've um, been able to make as a community and uh, around open data and online streaming and, you know, more accessibility around this stuff... Um, you can do it remotely quite effectively. So you can you can you can stream into a city council meeting. Exactly. Where do you find the link for that? 
Uh, if you go to counselontheweb.edmonton.ca or, or just go to edmonton.ca and search for it, you can yeah. find the link there. You can audio or video. Wow. So oftentimes I won't go physically to City Hall. Mm -hmm. I will stream it and listen in or they get recorded as well. So mm -hmm. sometimes I'll go back to a meeting that I yeah. know had an interesting discussion and listen to the discussion again. Um, if I know th there's going to be a really interesting vote or something happening, I will often go in person just right. to be able to see who's in the room. and Yeah, you, you know, get a better sense yeah. of what's going on, the emotional tension in the room. Right. Have they have they got to the point where so you can you can listen to the audio after the fact? Can, has, they, has anyone podcasticized it yet? Can you download it and listen to it on your phone? And Not, not yet, not unfortunately. Yet. There's opportunity for that, I think. But the next best thing is listening to Troy and I <laughs> yeah. talk about it. Distill all that bullshit down exactly. into one very targeted 30 minutes every week exactly so we pay attention so you don't have to is kind of our pitch yeah on speaking municipally so yeah i mean we just we just uh, finished budget um in in december so mm -hmm. that was a big topic of discussion for the podcast for a number of weeks right mm -hmm. so it's a big decision point for the city right a four-year budget like what are we going to spend our money on and what's yeah. it going to cost us in terms of taxes mm -hmm. and some really critical decisions about the direction we're going as a city are made at budget time so that was a really big um, you know, discussion point of interest for us. Mm -hmm. LRT, as you mentioned, is kind of an ongoing thing that is, uh, you know, depending on the line or where you're at, is in different stages, and mm -hmm. there's always interesting things happening there. So right now, you know, we're talking about both the West Line, so mm -hmm. building LRT out to West Edmonton Mall and beyond, and what that means in terms of, you know, expropriating land, so taking land away from people that currently own it to use it for the LRT, mm -hmm. um, you know, cutting down really historic trees and all the things that need to happen in order to make that line uh, feasible. And then we're talking about the Southeast line and how it's now a little bit behind schedule on mm -hmm. construction and businesses are being impacted and should or shouldn't we find some way to compensate them and how do we get it back on track? And yeah. you know, there's always kind of really interesting topics for us to delve into. And the thing I love about local politics is that it's the, the politics that impacts you most directly. Of course. Yeah. Right? Um, so speaking of LRT, I mean, is is it even on the table to discuss like a more advanced version of public transit? How I do mean, you mean? Well, like for example, I mean, LRT is a big, bulky, yeah, expensive, and realistically pretty slow and um, interfering form of technology to move people, right? Right. Um, have they, has anyone seriously considered magnetic levitation, which has been used around the world for decades now, right? Um, I podcasted a couple well, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, with a guy from Edmonton, actually Dan Corns, who um, runs or founded Magnivate Technology, and he, I read his whole white paper, and, and we talked about his technology and and how it's you know half the price could be built twice as fast, you know all, you know twice to five times the speed and, and efficiency. Um, you could incorporate you know. Um, uh, convoying of the of the yeah. of the uh, vessels and you know just all, all the things that you, as as a as a kind of a little bit of a tech geek myself I kind of nerdgasm over I'm like wow that's so cool the automation of it the application of it the expandability of that system um, and he said he pro uh, propositioned city council to at least hold off on making an LRT decision until they until they actually had a little bit of look into what he was offering and and that kind of method of transit and and it doesn't seem like what well, seems like it fell on deaf ears i think the uh, city the city council and the city administration are pretty committed to the vision of the lrt network that mm -hmm. has been you know previously approved at least in concept 
um, and and further beyond that in certain parts, right, in terms of corridors and things like that. So uh, it's pretty difficult to walk that sort of a commitment back, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're trying to get funding from the provincial and federal governments, which is what we really need in order to build it. We don't have the capital to build it ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to convince them to give you money if they question whether or not you're committed to building those lines. Right. So at least publicly, you know, the statement has been LRT is critical and can be a huge enabling technology within the city and we need it in order to move the amount of people that are going to live here in mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years. Um, there has been sort of passing reference to all of these other things, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the Hyperloop or, uh, you know, maglev stuff mm -hmm. or, or even, um, you know, self-driving cars and, and some of the other things that might be coming down the pipe. You know, there's been the odd report that comes up at council where there's a bit of investigation into this. We've, you know, been a test site for some of the electric automated vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been some experimentation, but no major commitments to any of that kind of thing. Right. Um, and I do think that's interesting. Probably the, the best alternative to LRT that has come up a number of times, um, but hasn't gotten a lot of um, uh, traction because LRT is the stated direction is BRT, right? So bus rapid that's transit right. and what we could do with, with buses to uh, effectively move people. Mm -hmm. um, I think the sort of overall understanding the city tries to put forward is that you know one technology is going to solve the problem we need mm -hmm. a, a variety of ways for people to move about the city mm -hmm. um, LRT is great for moving a large number of people over a long distance it's perhaps not the quickest way to get mm -hmm. from Millwoods to downtown there might be a direct bus that you take mm -hmm. that is a, a faster way for you to move there or an automated vehicle or, or something along those lines right so um, I think the idea that we don't commit to any one at the exclusion of other things is really important, that mm -hmm. we're open to um, incorporating other forms of moving around, um, which is partly why, you know, the backlash around bike lanes is surprising and not surprising to me, right? I know we're a car city and, right. you know, people really want their cars and stuff, but um, I don't see how getting some people off the road and putting them in on bikes and, mm -hmm. you know, um, separating out that traffic so that it's uh, safer for everybody is a bad thing. But, right. you know, it's the favorite thing that people pick on these yeah, days. Yeah, of course. Of yeah. course, because as soon as something inconveniences you, as soon as it directly impacts you, then all of a sudden you're up in arms about it, right? And you have an opinion about it. It's easy to not care because everyone's got so much going on in their own lives that it's very easy to get tunnel vision, right? Well, the other thing that people don't generally have is a good understanding of the relative costs of things, mm. right? So how much do we spend on bike lanes versus how much do we spend on roads? Like bike lanes are a rounding error. Yeah. Insignificant compared right. to how much we spend on roads. But, but to the average person, it sounds like a big number, right? When, right. They, when they say, what what did the, um, along uh, high, it's called high street there, that, that bike line, they, I forget what the number was. They said like it was a million or a couple million like per. Yeah, we're talking millions for bike lanes. Yeah. Right? We're talking hundreds of millions a year mm -hmm. for roads. Yeah, and people don't understand that they don't see the correlation there. Right. But what's the process? So I say, say I'm Dan Korns and I've got my technology, I've got my white paper, my research, my engineers, everyone's everyone's dialed in and I've got this proposal that's just just great it looks it looks fantastic and and other than previous commitments there's no reason for the city not to consider it. what's what's the process of submitting something like that to the city and having someone actually vet it so Troy and I talked about this in a recent episode that there isn't actually a great process um, and partly it's depends on who you know mm -hmm. right in, in some cases um, and that'll maybe determine how effective it is at taking it forward. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you could go to administration directly. So to the city of Edmonton, to the bureaucrats and say, 
hey, I've got this proposal, who's the right person to talk to and try to go that direction. Um, it seems like it's always way more effective to go to your counselor. Mm-hmm. If you've got an idea or a complaint or an issue or something, bring it up with your city counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, the most effective thing they can do to try to get it on the agenda to move it forward is, is to make what's called a counselor inquiry. Mm-hmm. So they would, at a city council meeting, say, I'd like to get a report about this particular topic and it should have this information in it and it'll come back by this time frame. So um, the council will actually request um, the city to, to, to produce that report. It. Yeah. Because okay. if you think about it, city council is the, the boss. They're the ones that direct mm-hmm. administration what to do. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. It's a way for administration to say, oh, we can't do it until council gives us direction. <laughs> yeah. And on the other hand, it's like, well, do we need council to direct every single thing? Probably not. Right. Um, but that's an effective way to get something on the agenda so that other councillors are aware of it, mm-hmm. so that administration does their due diligence and brings an idea forward. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not go anywhere. Council mm-hmm. may get a report back and say, oh, that's interesting, yeah. and then leave it alone, right? Yeah. Um, but that can be a good way to get it on the agenda. You could go the alternative route and just make a big public stink about something, right? right. And do some PR and try to build up some awareness mm-hmm. or go the Edmonton Project route where you mm-hmm. hold this flashy campaign and try to get people to come up with crazy ideas and run with it from there. So yeah. there's lots of ways you can try to approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on the on the project. And if there's an existing thing happening that you can sort of latch on to, then maybe that's another effective vehicle to, to bring right. your idea forward. Or... Um, or uh just bribe enough taproot <laughs> uh, members to, to upvote it. Yeah. It's it's one of the issues, I think, that and one of the disconnects between, you know, citizens and government, specifically municipal government, is we just there's no one's ever taught us these these connections and these these systems of how things work, right? And it, it's so you kind of you just feel like, well there's there's no point in me speaking up because I'm not going to be heard. Like no one really sees like the direct connection from them to making an impact. And so it, it, it feels a little overwhelming. You're just like, what can I do really? So, I mean, it's, you know, it's great that you guys are doing what you're doing in that sense because connecting, what was something you said in your podcast? Act, act like an owner, act like an owner of the city, right? Because we are, right? We yeah, basically... you're taxpayers. Everybody's, you know, it's your money at work essentially. So mm-hmm. you should be able to ask questions about it and, uh, share your opinions. I, you know, I will say I've been part of the city's um, public engagement initiative for the last number of years, mm-hmm. and so they've won some awards for this work. And and now it's sort of a, you know you've got to take the good planning that you did and put it into practice. But mm-hmm. there is a real desire on the part of the city and and the part of council to better engage people and to allow people to have their opinions and to put their ideas forward and for that to be considered and to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the decision has to go the way the public engagement does, but that engagement is a really valuable input for decision makers. And yeah. So when city council's got to make a decision about something, it's really valuable to know what citizens think. Right. And you know, we're clearly not there yet. Troy likes to complain on the podcast that if you go to city council and stand up and register to speak, your voice carries a lot more weight than if you send an email. For sure. Right? Or a tweet. And is that good or bad? I don't know. Like, probably bad, right? Because there's a whole bunch of accessibility concerns with that. Not everybody has the ability to go to city council. Not everybody's, mm-hmm. you know, confident enough to get up and talk in front of them. Mm-hmm. And, and just because they can't do those things doesn't mean they shouldn't be heard. So right. there's lots of problems with the way that works. Um, but I'm encouraged by the desire of everyone to try to, to at least recognize that that's a problem mm-hmm. and to try to do something better. But devil's advocate to that would be the, the more, more of a barrier you have to something, the more sure and the more uh, committed someone needs to be to put forward. If, if, if um, you know, an email is weighted just as heavily as, as going in to speak, 
you know, how easy is it to send an email? You could send an email from your computer at 3 a.m. while you're drunk, right? Like it's just, yeah. and how do you vet the, how do you vet the information coming in from the public too? I mean, you know, not everyone is going to be, is going to be as well researched and thoughtful as someone like yourself is. Um, so, you know, by opening up more access to city council, are you creating more work for them to have to actually vet this communication that's coming in? I hear you and I would say yes, and we should just support that. We should fund that. We uh, should allow people to, uh, or, or counselors to have bigger budgets if we need it, or to expand the number of counselors that we have so they have fewer constituents. Mm -hmm. There's there's other ways to address the problem than restricting access to engagement. Right. You know, I'd rather see more engagement and then I have to devise ways to, to effectively, you know, process that information mm -hmm. and make sense of it than to just say, no, we're, we're not going to listen to you because we just don't have the capacity. Right. You know? Would AI be able to vet an email at some point, whether it's a smart idea or a dumb idea? I'm sure it could. Uh, there's algorithms that could make some judgment call whether yeah. it's a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you call <laughs> yeah. into question the vested interest of the people creating those algorithms the biases. and the biases yeah. Yeah. and whose pocket they're in. But yeah. um, so what let's let's talk about tech and AI. Let's circle back to that. Um, what 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 do you think of the big changes we're going to start seeing in this city in the next kind of five to ten years in terms of whether it's city council, government, the businesses, you know, even just infrastructure? What are the things that you're excited about? I mean, government moves really slowly, right? So I'm sure we'll see some adoption of technology there, but maybe not at the pace that we'd all like to see. But um, I do think um, it's pretty clear that machine learning is going to have a huge impact on all kinds of businesses mm -hmm. and organizations. Um, uh, there was a speaker from Google that was in Edmonton last year, and one of the things that he said is, you know, machine learning is kind of like relational databases. So a database was, you know, however long ago, not something that every business had. And when they came out, these technologies were kind of strange and a little bit, you need to be technical to use them. And, and now every business has multiple databases. Mm -hmm. Like that's just not a thing. It's a it's like table stakes for running a business these days. Mm -hmm. um, and he kind of suggested that machine learning could be similar, right? And that every business will take advantage of machine learning in some capacity. And you can argue already that you are, whether you know it or not. If you buy something on Amazon, you've mm -hmm. engaged with some machine learning, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the application of that type of technology to problems in our community, to businesses that we interact with locally. I think that'll start to be more and more common and you know we're starting from a position of strength as I said earlier given that we're you know the the hub of so much um, expertise on this topic mm -hmm. and um, you know we've maybe not benefited as much as other places like Toronto in terms of applying that expertise to to generate new wealth but there's opportunity for us to do that here so you know when it comes to technology I think that's going to be probably foundational to most of of the change that we see. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, there'll be more capital as well, right? Mm -hmm. So um, either local investors or being able to bring in an investment from external sources to allow some of these companies to grow and develop and, and to scale. And, um, you know, that's an area that we're, we're also maybe a little bit behind other jurisdictions that, you know, seems like we've got the right ingredients and desired uh, direction for, for that to start to change. Mm -hmm. So I, I know you've been. I think you take. I think I think you take a little bit of pride in sort of bringing to light certain issues and and making the public aware and 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 emphasizing that they can have an impact. I know. I think you played a pretty integral part in the shutting down of the the uh, downtown airport. Um, and obviously, you know, you're 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 bringing light to the LRT stuff, the Mayfair golf course stuff. Um, you know, what what are some of the big issues that you want to draw attention to? Like currently, right now, other than the ones that maybe you've covered? 
or what do you foresee in the future near future well that's a little hard i suppose if i if i knew exactly i'd try to find a way to monetize that i guess right but yeah you're right i have had um the fortunate position and experience to be able to take advantage of an online platform to have Mm -hmm. an influence on some of these things Um, i mean i really think this question of economic diversification and moving off of the boom bust cycle of energy and you know more broad sources of uh, revenue for for our province and our city i think is important and i don't think that it'll be solved in the next few years but i think continuing to move in the right direction is really really important Mm -hmm. um you know i do think around the region there's a lot happening right now that not enough attention is being paid to so we've got you know the region board that kind of figures out planning uh, between all the municipalities that surround Edmonton and we've got um, the Edmonton Global now which is the economic um, diversification mm-hmm. arm of that trying to bring in new investment to the region and I think there's interesting things that are going to happen with with transit and, and how we do sort of a shared transit system and mm-hmm. smart fares and things like that there's some really interesting regional discussions that we need to have to make sure that you know if we are going to compete as a region globally and we're going to work effectively locally as a region like how do we do that what's the best way to approach that right and there's lots of stuff happening that i'm not sure everyone is aware of is actually happening Mm -hmm. you know and i think that's an area that i'd like to shine a light on a little bit more and and pay a little bit more attention to. right um you know LRT is always going to be around. It's going to be quite a while before the network is built out. So mm-hmm. how can we avoid things like the Metro line signaling mm-hmm. system? And how can we make sure that if we're building new lines, that we're funding them in a way that is good for taxpayers and just getting people aware of like, mm-hmm. how are we doing this? Are you aware that this is the way it's going? Maybe you should share right. your opinion, like those kinds of things. It's a big problem is the misinformation, right? You know, reporting with, with vested interests or people, you know, getting the reporters getting the wrong information and and it it makes it so confusing to the end consumer of this information like well you know what is up and what is down right like and it's just a shame that there's so much dishonesty right like you know just even the battle between Alberta and BC and trying to shut down the pipeline and you know I think there was what was the one article about you know BC ferries taking a big or the government of uh, Victoria taking a big big stand against the pipeline but then they're trying to increase their ferry uh, ridership and and also attract as many cruise ships to the area as possible it's like how do you how do you solve sort of the disconnect between all this information and and suss out the bullshit. I mean, one of the challenges is that the traditional journalists are so under-resourced, right? That Mm -hmm. there's just not enough people to go around to do the work that needs to be done to help explain these important concepts and discussions to everyday citizens. Mm -hmm. And so the journalists don't have the time to dig into it themselves in a lot of cases. I don't have the answer, but I'm working really hard to build it, right? I think that's what we're trying to do with Tapri. We think Mm -hmm. beat reporting is really, really important where you've got, you know, journalists that pay attention to a topic over time and they learn the connections and the relationships and the, you know, the the experience, they gain that experience about that topic and are able to figure out when something new happens, like, is it important? Is it newsworthy? How do we Mm -hmm. explain this to people? Um, And by taking a sort of deep dive approach into our original journalism, where we're, you know, investigating a topic, a question, and trying to do a really thorough job of it, Mm -hmm. we can hopefully better equip people to make decisions about things locally, whether Mm -hmm. it's a business deciding whether or not to invest or, you know, family deciding whether they want to move to a certain area or whatever the decision is. Right. We need to have really good information in order to make those decisions. And so Mm -hmm. we're trying to build the model to allow us to do that 
sustainably. And, um, you know, there's lots of places to find out what happened today. Mm -hmm. And there's not enough, why does it matter and how does it impact me? Right. And that's what we're really trying to come up with an approach to to solve. So I guess, you know, to answer your question too about what I'd like to see in the next few years, I'd like to see Taproot, you know, have a real big impact on our ability for um, people in Edmonton to have a good understanding of what's happening in their community and to Mm -hmm. be able to make good decisions about based off that. Are you going to go into politics? <laughs> Everyone always asks me this. Like, are you going to run for council? Like, when are you going to run for mayor? Like, I mean, what better way to make an... I'm, well, actually, maybe not necessarily, but I, like, you just seem like you're you're, you're so dedicated to the truth and, and you're, you're so passionate about the best future for this city, um, relatively unbiased as far as I can tell. Um, opinionated, but... Uh, opinionated, but... Uh, I'll change it if I get ev- evidence to the contrary. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, mm. but I'm not uh, one of those folks that's desiring to be a counselor necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think I've come to realize that you can have a pretty big impact without um, taking on the challenges and stress that come with being one of those 13 votes at City Hall. Right. Um, so I think there's opportunity for people to have an influence and to impact the way things go in a variety of different ways. Um, but as I say, I wouldn't rule it out because who knows, maybe down the line, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm old and gray and want to you know, give back in a different way, maybe I'll try my hand at that. I don't know. But for the, for the moment, I think I can have a pretty big positive impact on the city and you know, some of the other work that I'm doing. So yeah. that's what I'm focused on. You've got a huge reach. Like your, your Twitter ship is like 20,000 plus, right? Did, did I read this right? You, were, you think you're the 985th person on Twitter? Yeah. So in the early days of Twitter, the user ID that you got was sequential. Yeah. So you would know based on your user ID where you started. So I joined Twitter in July 2006 mm-hmm. and it only was created in February of that year. So yeah, I was one of the first thousand people. It was really just, you know, right time, right place. I wish I had invested earlier. <laughs> right. On. <laughs> How did you even become aware of it in the first place? Uh, my startup at the time was a podcasting company. Um, in 2006. 2000, yeah, we started in 2004. But So we were probably 10 or 12 years too early because had we started it a couple of years ago, we'd have been in better shape. Yeah. Um, but we were podcasting, hosting service, and we were paying attention to our competitors. And there was a company called Odeo mm-hmm. that was also in the podcasting space. And the founders of Odeo were the guys that started Twitter. Wow. And so we were paying attention to everything they did because they were a competitor. And one day they launched this little side project called Twitter. And we were like, what is this random thing that they're doing? Yeah. And so that's how I got onto it and joined it and, and tested it out. What was it in, in, in the early days? Because now it's obviously just a platform for political outrage. But, you know, what what was going on on Twitter back, you know, 15 years ago? So when it started, there were no vowels. It was just TWTTR. Okay. That was the name of it. Yeah. It was all around text messages, mm-hmm. right? So you, that's where the 140 character limit came from oh, okay. is because you could only interact with it through your SMS messages. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the things that we take for granted now, like retweets and, and all of those features, those didn't exist. Like mm-hmm. people created those, users created those and Twitter adopted them. So for me, early on, Twitter was this really great place to build community. Mm-hmm. And in Edmonton, it's how I met so many people and, and formed so many relationships was through this Twitter community that um, of early adopters, people that joined this network. Right. I use Twitter far less today than I did when I started. And, and a lot of that is because of the vitriol that you see online and sort of the negative um, experience that you often have when you're flipping through the feed. So mm-hmm. I don't spend as much time there as I once did yeah. you know, for those reasons. But I do think it's still a pretty valuable platform. Like It's amazing to me that we can, anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. see a whole bunch of people talking about something that's happening and, and have a conversation with them. Like, mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. 
You, I mean, you do so many things, Mac. Um, your time is, is really valuable. Uh, are there any specific tools you use? Like, how do you manage your time? Like, you, you accomplish so many things, and I just, even myself, I'm like, geez, I feel like I could be doing more, but the, the things that I'm doing seem to take up all my time, and I know I'm probably just not being efficient enough. Like, how have you learned over, over the years to sort of balance that out? How do, you, how do you make time for the important things personally and professionally? This is a little bit of a pet project of mine, like I'm all, or a hobby, I guess. Like I'm always interested in reading about new productivity tools and approaches, mm-hmm. and I've tried a bunch of different stuff over the years. Um, I guess the number one thing is that you make time, right? You mm-hmm. don't have time, you make it. So you choose what's important to spend your time on. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch occasional television or Netflix or whatever, but not as much as the average uh, person does. So I spend that time on, on other things. Um, I live and die by the calendar. <laughs> if it's not in my digital calendar, I don't know what's happening. Um, I use a you know a task list application, and I'm every day. What am I doing today? And it's in in the task list. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a an amazing partner who is uh, brilliant and keeps me on track and reminds me of things that I'm supposed to be doing, even if I forget to do it in my digital system. So. Mm-hmm. My wife is awesome for that. The fail safe. You've got to have you've got to have good support systems. Is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I use a ton of different tools, and um, you know, I've experimented with all these different kinds of crazy pro- productivity approaches, right? Mm-hmm. So, like the Pomodoro method, where you're setting like a timer for 25 minutes, and you do concerted 25 oh, minutes. Oh, interesting. Then yeah. you take a five minute break, and then you do another one. Does like, that work? It depends on what you're doing. Is what I found. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, Some things require more than 25 minutes. I'm sure. Yeah, and then you you got to not only have it in your calendar and schedule it, but think about the way that you schedule it. So mm-hmm. um, Paul Graham, this like really well-known guy in the startup ecosystem, mm-hmm. wrote this really interesting essay about manager manager time versus maker time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, creative people that are doing work need to get into a state of flow. And when they're interrupted by a status meeting or the manager coming in to say, hey, what's your progress? Or even a text message indication. Right. right. It really disrupts the sort of ability for you to really get productive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for that reason, you try to have blocks of time where you can be a maker and other blocks of time where you're doing that creative, you know, get out, um, or less creative, sorry, get out and talk to people and, yeah. and have those interactions and those distractions, right? So, right. But at the end of the day, it's you've got to decide what's important to you and figure out how to... Yeah. appropriate your time right. accordingly. And I think that's where people falter off the starting block is they don't make a target and a goal and say, this is what I'm going for. Or what I you know, ran into a lot was that I wouldn't schedule things. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would, you know, it'd be important to me and I'd want to do it, but I wouldn't make the time for it. I wouldn't make mm-hmm. the commitment to it. Um, and so then it it's easy to let it fall by the wayside and to not do it. So I think that's important too. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't have to be a calendar for other people. It might be a different system, but to have a way to say, this is important to me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to signify that by, you know, making it in this time slot or whatever, putting it in my list or whatever the tool is that you're using. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit of a geek. So the challenge I often run into is that like, there's always a new tool. Yeah. And so I'm always like, Oh, I should try that out. And then it, that, that can be a little distracting, right? How much time do you allocate to trying new things right. versus sticking with what has been working so far? Right. Exactly. I can understand that. Yeah. Well, speaking of time management, I've already kept you here longer than I said I would. So, um, I'll let you get back on with your day, but this honestly been a real pleasure. I uh, appreciate you coming here and, uh, and chatting with me and, and thanks for the info. And I know people are going to be excited to, to hear this one and, and know what you're doing and, and, and find out ways to get involved as well because I think uh, you know people are realizing 
even more so at a younger age that Edmonton's such a fantastic place and there are so many different communities, but we're all one big community together. So thanks for doing everything that you've been doing and, and coming here to talk to me again today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, our mayor likes to say that Edmonton is not done. It's a place where you can continue to build and mm-hmm. sort of make something Edmonton had that same ethos to it and that really resonates with me. So I love that there's interesting people here doing creative stuff and I look forward to uh, hearing all about them on future episodes of your podcast. So awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mac. Hi again, everyone. Me here one more time. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. So if you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kasowski. Kasowski. Should have read that before I dove into this. And we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Sorry, Chris. Uh, Learn more at parkpower.ca. Thanks again for listening, guys. Can't wait to see you next week. Ciao.